Wes found something that might change my life for this week's episode. Game changer. The peak of the show right here is a Raspberry Pi powered grocery bot. You take it with you. It's like a Raspberry Pi companion. It's built into a case. It has a handle. It has a mustache. It has a camera. What a mustache. It is a great mustache, actually. Why don't more Raspberry Pi cases have mustaches? And anyways, get this thing. It's basically got like one of those little um, barcode scanners and a buzzer. And it helps you keep track of the groceries (laughs) that you need and have picked up. And you just take it with you and scan the barcodes. Uh, and you can add them to your grocery list, and then you can get the report on your mobile device when you're at the grocery store. So when you get you like have this thing in your kitchen, you pull, oh, I'm out of milk, and you scan the barcode, it adds it to your list, and then the next time you're at the grocery store, you have all the items, right, the exact item, the specific item. By barcode. I mean, yeah, right? How great is that this? That seems really nice. Because take it to the next level. Imagine that uh, your Beard here, right? Beard gets online deliveries all the time. I've done it a little bit myself with yep. our local Safeway grocery store. It's great. It's so the way to go, yeah? Yeah. And imagine now taking that to the next level where you could have this thing next to the fridge and you scan the barcode, it adds it to a list, and then when you're done, you just hit send. It sends the whole list off to the grocery delivery service. And in a couple of days, a whole new batch of groceries shows up at your door. Would you, you would totally use this. Come on. I would. The thing I would like to see more is um, uh, AI integration to suggest new groceries to me. Oh, like based on your grocery profile. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is Linux Unplugged, episode 225 for November 28th, 2017. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that honestly, a little meat drunk this week. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. And Wes, as luck would have it, the beard's here too. Hello, Whoa. beard. Happy half birthday to me. <laughs> okay. Indeed. That's random. That's random, but it's going to be, you know what? A day of celebration here on the Unplugged program. That's right. He looks good for his half age too. He does, doesn't he? Nominally this week, we're going to talk about DRM about sort of the historical impact I think it's going to have, and how Linux users could take a small but important step today to to make a change. We'll talk about that later on in the show. But before then, we got some news. We got some community news we're going to get into, and we've got a Gen 2 challenge. How's it going over there, by the way, Wes? Are you getting the virtual machine fired up? Yes, I am. So as the show progresses, Wes will be installing Gen 2 from a Stage 3 install. That's right. Getting a base system running. Yep. And then throughout the future weeks of the Unplugged program, each episode, another piece of the Gen 2 puzzle will be clicked into place. And we'll see how many episodes it takes to get Wes Payne to a fully functional Gen 2 system. I'm excited. So, starting off right now with episode one. So, 225 marks episode one of the Gen 2 challenge. Right now, right here. We're going to need to get a jingle for this. We're oh, going yeah. oh, to need yeah. a Gen 2 challenge jingle. So, if you have any ideas, send us one. And uh, we're going we're gonna to... In the background, we'll be doing that as we go through the news, and we'll check in with you towards the end of the show and just see how far you got, okay? Are you good with that? You feel comfskies? You comfskies with that? I'm totally comfskies. All right. Well, then before we go any further, then you know what we got to do. We got to bring in that virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Hey. Oh, oh, hello. Oh, hello, everybody. It is good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, we got so much to talk about this week. There's a big story. It's one of these licensing stories that makes like a lot of headlines and a lot of people glaze over when it comes out. But I think it's definitely worth talking about. Today, breaking news, ladies and gentlemen. This is CNN Breaking News. 
press release from Red Hat over at redhat.com, um, Facebook and Google, IBM and Red Hat have committed to providing a clause to their GPL2 software that they ship. And this clause has um, has some familiar familiar elements to it. You may have heard us recently discuss the software conservancies agreement they got with about 200 Linux kernel copyright holders to try to work out with companies. Oh, yeah, right. Smooth things out before you sue them. We'll try all other avenues before we sue. It was essentially this, this agreement that took, that took some clauses from the GPL3 and applied them in a signing statement to the GPL2 software. Well, now Red Hat and Facebook and Googs and IBM have taken it a step further. Red Hat writes on their blog, this is going to provide greater predictability to users of open source software. Red Hat, Facebook, Google, and IBM today each committed to extending the GPL3 approach for licensing compliance errors to the software code that each license under the GPL version 2 and GPL LGPL version 2 and version 2.1. They're calling it a common cure rights commitment. Boy, that's thick. But what it essentially says is we'll try everything else first. We'll work with you. And Karen Sandler, she runs the, the Software Conservancy. She was quoted in an article from the Register that says, uh, yeah, uh, she's really thrilled that companies are doing this, that they're willing to take on dialogue and upping their commitment to enforcement in a way that is going to actually work long term. And in the article from the Register, uh, they quote Red Hat saying, Red Hat explained that legal proceedings generally produce poor results. Yeah in the free software and open source community. And that litigation should always be avoided. Why I like this story <clears throat> is because it's, it's a victory for the nerds. It's a victory for the engineers. It's a victory for the people who create things and make things and write software. It's a victory for the kernel developers because this is their preference. I'm not here to tell you which approach is right. I'm here to tell you that the kernel developers, they seem to appear to prefer this approach. And that's good enough for me. Good enough for me. They want to work with these companies first before you try to sue them. Because when you sue them, they react badly. They retract from their involvement in open source. And they make shit worse for everybody. Yeah, right. Getting the lawyers involved doesn't, doesn't make new things happen or improve anyone's experience or the software at all. It's just... You're in the legal system. And I've, I felt this way for years. When we had, we had Greg KH on the Linux Action Show, and this is something that he and I personally talked about. Um, it wasn't necessarily in the interview, but it was something that he and I talked about off-air was that these, these discussions um, take years and years and years, but generally result in a internal, internal uh, advocacy for respecting open source licenses. And, 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 and that sort of blossoms into a change of culture for a company and how they interact with open source projects. And when you sue them, what happens is you smack them in the face. They retract from their involvement in open source because all of a sudden it becomes a business risk and you shut them down. You poison the water. Say it again. You poison the water. You poison the water. And, and the thing is, is I don't, really, I don't really have a dog in this hunt, but I know that the people that are writing the software do. And this is, how, this is the preference they have. So it's really, really great to see Google and Facebook and IBM and Red Hat all kind of go this way. And the elephant in the room is, well, what about this whole Software Freedom Law Center versus the Software Conservancy lawsuit that's going on, which a lot of people thought was sort of 
brought on after this big agreement. I don't know. I don't know. But I think this is a really great move. Also, <clears throat> unrelated, uh, fuck the register. This is a ridiculous stock image that they have used for this post. Oh, yeah. It's some attractive girl staring at her clock making some stupid face that you'd make for, like, Instagram. And they've slapped it on a story about GPL uh, license it makes laws. No sense. Where they're quoting Karen and they're quoting other... It, 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 when you look at the Twitter preview, it looks like this is a stock... This is supposed to be an image of Karen Sandler. Which it's not. And this is a weird image. It's a, it's just inappropriate. It's, the Register recently has been really pissing me off with inaccurate coverage. Uh, and then now this. <clears throat> I don't like it. I don't like it. I know they're trying to get clicks, but uh, do a better job. Do a better job. Anyways, uh, I think this is uh, funny enough. Actually, looking at the Twitter feed for Karen Sandler, somebody pointed out what a bizarre stock photo that the <laughs> Register yeah. used. Because like, when you look at the preview on Twitter... Uh, it totally looks like that's supposed to be Karen Sandler because it's coming from the Software Freedom Conservancy Center and they're talking about Karen getting quoted in the article and then there's this picture of the stock girl who, you know, is wearing glasses that don't even have lenses in them and is staring at a watch that's too big for her wrist. It's just a, it's a really obnoxious photo. Anyways, it's good to see Red Hat and all those companies work together and I, I bet the real story here is how that happened. How did those companies wind up in a room together? to do this and what 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 started what was the thing that started the conversation what was the seed to get facebook and ibm and google see that's the thing they're big people with their own agendas like if it was yeah if it's twitter and facebook or microsoft and facebook but google and Facebook, facebook yeah that's that's there's something bigger going on here there's a bigger story here that we the peebs don't get to know about and hopefully it speaks well to uh, you know their their desire to continue good relationships with the open source community, both using and contributing back. Yeah, yeah. I kind of kind of am sick of the licensing stuff. To be honest with you, I couldn't. It's important, but it's like at the end of the day, that's not what we get excited about. Like right? ex- we want to get excited about the software. It's like exercise. Yeah, like I know I need to do it, and so I have to push through it. All right, fine, I'll go for a fucking walk. But I got to tell you, I don't really have any interest in doing it. Like this licensing stuff, it's there needs to be a Grok law of of twenty eighteen that is concise and needs to tell us why this stuff matters. So that way I can quote them. So that way I don't have to read through all this shit and then tell you guys about it because it's <laughs> it's just like slogging. I know first world problem, right? Speaking of first world problem, how do you finance your open source project? How do you make money doing open source? How can you do open source full time? Well, we found a guide this week. Did did you find this or did I find this? I'm not sure. I don't remember I either. Think we may have both stumbled upon maybe, it. Maybe, maybe. This is a handy financial guide for open source projects and it's up on GitHub. And in the pre-show, <clears throat> I was talking with Dan from Elementary OS and uh I was telling Dan that uh, one of the things that I actually really respect about elementary OS is that they're brave enough to ask for money for their hard work. And I think initially people push back and like, well, what is elementary OS doing? What are they doing? There's an Ubuntu respin, obviously misunderstanding all of the hard work that goes into it. But the people that get it want to pay. They want to support something like this. But how do you ask for money? How do you do that in a way that isn't offensive and in a way that doesn't seem unreasonable for something that is free by its very license? And so this is a massive guide. This is actually legitimately worth your time. And it breaks it down into 16 different areas. 
16 different areas. Number one would be you can just take a donation button, and you're going to get the pros and cons about each one of these. You can have bounties. You can have crowdfunding one time. You can have crowdfunding reoccurring. You can have merch, books, advertising, sponsorships. You can get hired by a company to work on a project. You can start a project while you're currently employed. You can have grants, consulting services, software as a service, freemium licenses, dual licenses, open core foundations, maybe VC. There's a lot of options. Yeah, <laughs> and it shows you examples of like all of them too. So Dan, I know you just had like five minutes with the article, but did anything jump out at you? Any warning signs or do you think this is maybe a solid guide to, sh- to point people at? No, I've been I've been poking through it um, while you guys have been doing all the rest of the show, and it, it's really comprehensive. She does a really good job going through and saying, you know, hey, um, this is what's good about this, but this is also what's bad about going this route, and gives a lot of alternatives. Yeah, and, um, you get you a know, sense of a lot of research. I mean, a lot of research when it's like she must have gone out there and surveyed a lot of open source projects and seen how they're doing. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I, I think um, you know one of the things that. Um, has kind of glossed over, I guess, but but that I would definitely recommend for anybody thinking about how to fund their open source project is to try as many as they can, you know, as mm. long as it doesn't go against your project goals. Because she does talk about, like, with advertising and stuff, like, maybe that conflicts with your project stances on, you know, how they feel about whatever, but... But just try try a lot of different things and you, see what sticks. Dan, and, what do you think about this advice for an open source project is think of your asking for contributions, not from ra- random strangers, but from community members you've engaged with, which means you're going to have to up your community engagement. You're going to have to up your community game. But you're not asking for the drive-by donators. What you're asking for is people that have engaged with the project, that become fans, they're advocates of, of the of the project – they use it themselves. They they find importance with it. Those are really the people you want donations from because those are the ones that are going to be motivated to keep the project alive, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big – you're going to get your recurring stuff from them, right? So your uh, merchandising or if you're on Patreon or anything like that, those are definitely the people that you want to um, look at for, for things like that. Um, I can tell you though that uh, our number one – uh, method of revenue right now is the pay what you want on our website and it's um it's a lot more than what we get from patreon really more oh. than patreon huh? even though patreon's yeah. uh reoccurring now mm-hmm. that must be cyclical though and that must be tied to release cycles because yes absolutely yeah now yeah which when you do that now you have to predict you know uh what that does makes, that money that actually makes, mean doesn't per that month? make staffing significantly harder like there's so many like uh like hard things to predict because you don't know if, say, the the elementary OS released based on eighteen oh four is going to be a huge hit or not. Maybe ever, maybe all the attention will be on stock Ubuntu. Yeah, so in that way, you kind of have to you know look at you know what past releases did, and you can only guess you know based on what information you already have. So if you haven't been fundraising for a few years already, you don't really have a base to go off of. You know, it can be scary at first figuring out how much money do you even really have. You also have to um, you have to sort of sum up your worth and say how yes. valuable am I versus the other things that are out there, and that can be you have to be pretty humble when you do that, don't you think? Yeah, and I think that's a huge part of your marketing as a project is actually pitching your value proposition. What do users get by supporting you? Why should they do it? Why should they do it continually if you're if you're um, raising money on something like Patreon? That's one of the cons that she points out in this list is on something like Patreon. It can be unclear. Why why do people want to continually give you money? What is it exactly that they're funding? 
Yeah, and she points out that it usually taps out. They're like there seems to be like sort of a maximum that you're going to get there, and that's just about as much saturation as you get. Um, and it, I would say too, just been you know doing this now for a while, it would and something that I could do a lot, a lot better at. And uh, creators like Philip DeFranco are much better better at it than I am. Um, is uh, diversify constantly. Always be looking for new avenues to try. Right. You know, merchandise or not. Mm-hmm. And again, and um, this is something I think people fuck up a lot. Is don't do it from the standpoint of how the hell do I do I milk these people for all they're worth. But think about it from the standpoint of people who get what I'm doing are my target. I want to I want to sell to people who I'm already engaging with and. What is it that would – and this is a douchebaggy term, but this is really how you got to think about it. What would delight them, right? What would, give, what would get them like – what would get them like fired up? Like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like could you do something funny with a t-shirt? Then that's merch that's worth selling. You know, if you're just going to put a basic bitch logo on there and put it over the – which I've done plenty of times, you know, why are you bothering? You know, you, they could go make that themselves these days if they really wanted that. You know, I'll offer something different there if you're, trying, if you're going to diversify. And it involves a lot of reflection. It involves a lot of understanding of what your target audience wants and what they're generating value from. And when you understand those things, you can you can tend to sell well to those people. And it's not because you're selling them. It's because you're providing them something they already want. And you just have to kind of connect with where they're at and do that. And if that may be bugs. It could be a bug. That could be a bug bounty program. It doesn't have to necessarily be merchandise. There's a lot of options there. So definitely take a look at this guide because myself – and um, I bet, of course, Dan feels this way, but I know a lot of others do too. It's, I want to see more people making money from open source than we've ever seen before. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be a thing? Like, if by the end of 2018, it's it's like a it's considered a viable business model to 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 make a living producing open source software for independent. I really, 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 really think the next few years are going to be a great opportunity for people that can go independent. And work for themselves, be a, yeah. be a, be a contractor or be a, their own be their own uh, business or whatever that don't that that are that aren't reliant on um, a standard paycheck. I think just a, at least here in the states, this is obviously a very U.S. centric view, but I think here in the states, people that are self employable, people that 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 uh, can self produce and, and generate their own sources of income and diversify multiple sources of income, are going to have the best chance going forward. And there would be a huge benefit to open source if one of the ways you could make an independent living as somebody who has some software development skills is by developing open source software. And this guide could help people figure it out because it's a bunch of really hard-learned lessons over the last decade all compiled into 16 different categories. And it's stuff that when I read through this resonates with my personal experience and resonates with stories I've heard from developers in open source. And so it's one of these things where it's a rare opportunity to get about a decade's worth of hard-learned lessons in one solid read if you're trying to do this yourself. And my personal bias is, really, I just want to see more people making money developing open source. Well, I actually would like to see a little bit of a different approach also taken because I feel that a lot of projects start with this uh, concept of just designing the software that they are passionate about. Of course, that is all that open source is about. But I think there's a big difference between making a business and making what you love. You yeah. can sometimes yeah. merge yep. the two. Yeah. And sometimes you shouldn't. Sometimes you shouldn't, really, to be honest. There's yes. a reason why I don't have a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, the whole the whole thing is when you decide to make it a business, you actually have to come up with a business plan that is viable. And this is actually the problem number one for most people, in my opinion, when they come up with their open source projects. Like they start with the ideas of how can I get donations as soon as they start seeing the project getting some traction and they are already succumbed into a place that they can't really charge well for their product. You know, if you're a business, you need capital first when you start developing, you do an investment and you expect the return of that investment. And people don't even contabilize how much of that investment they are doing themselves is worth it. That's why mm. they don't have a way mm. of calculating the price that they should be charging. Yes, that's very true. Look out, I have been there myself. Look out, they actually don't look out for how to how to actually start seeing, for example, if there's actually people interested, the people that are willing to put their money you know, where their mouth is. Oftentimes, they go around and they ask, would you like to see that happen? People say, yeah, I would buy that. And, you know, and when, then it's done and people don't pay. You know, the developer goes like, oh, I got fooled on this. Uh, of course, people could get it for free. They would get it for free. Mm. Bashful Robot, Overall, you have you have some thoughts on sustainability and some pushback on it. Uh, and then and then I'll go back to you, Dear Devlin. Go ahead, Bashful. All I was really going to say is uh, you look at some people, like this. the sustainability uh, loops back to what you were saying before with why they're asking for donations. So that was kind of what, like one little point was just that maybe that's the approach to take. Then the other uh, point was the pushback. Like, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened with the Caddy project, but... No, could you give me a background on that? Yeah, a little bit. So Caddy is an HTTP2 server written in Go. Mark Bates is the author, and it was open source. And he basically started building out a or, or attempting to build out a business behind it and the only form of sponsorship was like an HTTP header that they just injected in there. So a lot of people got super PO that there was go- they thought it was going to be like a closed source thing. They didn't like the header, which in some ways I can sort of see. But then they uh, he just basically got raked over the coals trying to find a way to monetize and continue on with the work. And, and you think there's some entitlement there? Yeah, I think so. Because if you look at like people get something for free. And you could even take that and look at it from the point of view of like support. And, you know, a lot of people are doing this in their spare time and they almost expect you to answer like immediately or they expect you to fix the bug immediately or add the feature set, uh, you know, and and along those lines. And it's kind of like now, 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 whereas, you know, anyone may have like five different things that they're trying to do. And it's not necessarily just that one project. Or if you look at some of the other people, like even like uh, like Wimpy and them, like mm-hmm. who work full time mm-hmm. for Canonical, they've got certain obligations mm-hmm. there. Plus, you know, he's got Mate and all the other stuff that he's got his fingers in. Like he's, I don't know how he does it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Wimpy, yeah. you are a machine. That That's is for true. sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Daredevil, I wanted to let you finish your thought, though, because I know you were you were kind of wrapping that up. So basically, it's like actually when his last point that is actually also about setting expectations. And the other thing, unfortunately, that I see happening is that people often forget how the GPL was intended to be monetized. It is the developer gets paid to write code, not developer gets paid for releases or for uh, versions or licensing. And a lot of these models that people come up with open source is like, oh, I'm about to download and they, you know, everybody chooses what they want, but I'm about to download, so I give a donation. It's equivalent of paying for the current version or current license. And that is kind of what leads to most of the problems. So if you actually come with a value proposition of 
code gets written upon payment, and this is mm. what it costs to produce these code, then you could either only invest in it if you effectively got the money. And in that way, you could support sustainably your development. And it would be like any other contract. Stallman has talked about this over and over. The idea is to get developers to get paid to write code so that then the ownership is true. The person who paid for the code has ownership over it. So, Dan, do you think as a project there is messaging here to that if you just position uh, the project uh, and make it clear that these are our resources, this is our availability, is is that the solution to entitlement, Dan, or is it, is it deeper than that? Yeah, I absolutely think messaging is super important. I mean, you know firsthand that um, a few years ago we had some terrible messaging and, and came on your show to try to fix it because it was so bad. <laughs> and um you know had had huge pushback and it still burned us to this day yeah um, yeah you know just so not, recently in a reddit thread you and i were talking about somebody brought it up and it's like come on yeah it's just so, ancient history so definitely you know figuring out how to navigate around these aren't these are the not the good ways to communicate and these are the good ways to communicate mm-hmm. and being able to express to people about um how you want to meet their expectations and you want to provide the features and and that it isn't that you don't care yeah. because they want to know that you care about them and that you're trying, you know, right. and, and to explain that, right. you know, this is this is the best that we can do with the resources we have. And if we had these resources, then we would be able to do that thing you know, and, and, you know, and try to make it a negotiation. You're so right, Dan, because you guys have been a case study of of that. So, I mean, that is that is 100% legitimate experience that you have, uh, and I cannot disagree with that. It's kind of funny if you think about it because I can't really think of – I'm, I'm, I'm going to give a second before I, before I say this out loud. <laughs> but I can't think of two other projects that are better at explaining why the hell you should pay for them than Elementary OS and Ubuntu Mate. I really, you know, like, uh, uh, so, so Wimpy's posts, I'll tell you what, what, what I like about Wimpy, Wimpy's posts for the Ubuntu Mate project on Patreon that have inspired me now for a couple of years and I still haven't figured, I still haven't gotten my shit together on how to do this for Jupiter Broadcasting, but, uh, Wimpy will say, you know, we spent, um, $126 to this guy or whatever to, to develop this feature and we spent a hundred and whatever with, with this project and we spent, we sent this much of your money to this project. Wimpy, we, we, did you have an intentional rationale behind those posts to specifically say this is the value you're getting from your contribution? Was there like a, is there like a, like some, some reflection you did to say, I need to tell people what they're getting with their contribution? Is he there? It was such a good question. It really was. It was a great question. <sighs> That's okay. <clears throat> That's okay. Go ahead, Eric. I know you want to jump in, so I'll, I'll jump to you. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can speak to a lot of this. Uh, I, I work full-time for for an online education company, but on the side, I own an IT consulting business. Oh, Okay. And that consulting business recently, actually, uh, day before yesterday, just lost our best client uh, because even though I took time off from from my day job, like took vacation time in the middle of a day uh, to go and help with what they considered was it was an emergency. It ended up being something fairly simple, but to them it was an emergency, and so I I left my my day job to go help them out. And it, it ended up being Windows 10 Home Edition was their problem. Oh. They they bought a computer that I didn't recommend, and they got Windows 10 Home instead of Windows 10 Pro. And uh, 
to be honest, I went into I went into the situation not having having my my ducks in a row because I tried to pitch switching to Linux, getting away from all that um, from from all the licensing with Microsoft and that kind of thing, and and supporting open source. And you know they they basically fluffed it off as. Uh, well, you know, that, that Linux thing that's yeah. just for nerds. And... I've been there. Yep. I'm really sorry. That sucks. You know, losing losing a client, too, is like the the worst thing ever, especially when they don't follow your recommendations. That is uh, that is the worst. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, Eric. Um, Wimpy, sounds like you have your situation sorted, sir. Do you uh, remember my question? I do, yes. <laughs> um, it always helps to remember which key you've bound to push to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Push so, to talk. <laughs> well, it's good to so, see. It's good to hear you. And uh, yeah, please run with it. Um, yes, uh, my intention with the, those messages that we send out is to uh, exactly explain to the patrons uh, how the money is being spent, but more importantly, the value that that has to the project. And oftentimes, uh, the way that the money is being used is to fund development that the teams that are involved right now who volunteer their time frame freely wouldn't have time to do if they weren't incentivized or compensated in some way in order to work on those projects. Now, um, do you agree with my assessment that the way to think about a, a patron or some other sort of reoccurring con- contribution to an open source project is if you reframe it as they're your client – and uh, you need to constantly remind your client why their contribution or their their um, patron of you, patronage of you is is useful. Like you're you're communicating to them on an ongoing basis. It's almost a sales position. It's really sort of doing sales, but in a you know in a more genuine way. I don't mean to like douchebag it up a little bit, but don't you feel like a, it's kind of like a client relationship that you're reselling your value to? It, it really is. I mean, there, there are months when I don't get the time to post a patron as yep. uh, uh, as detailed as I would like mm-hmm, or same. as regularly as I would like. And when you get a couple of months off the back like that, you do see people uh, reining in their support. So they'll reduce their contributions or they will opt out entirely. So it is very much a client management relationship in that respect for, for some people at yeah. least. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, those are just sort of sort of my insights. And I think uh, Wimpy's and, and Dan's insights that if you want to try to if you want to try to monetize an open source project or something like that, just things to consider. And uh, boy, you know, I'd love to see more people be successful. I try to back as many people as I as I as I can on Patreon. You know, that's it's getting to be that point. Absolutely. But I try to because I really want to see more people be uh, successful and want to see people do this long term. Um, sounds like we have more thoughts on this. So Eric and others, let's take it up in the post show. Save it, please remind me because I will forget by the time we get there because right now I got to stop and take a moment and thank Linux Academy. And to be honest with you, I'm so excited about freaking Linux Academy that I'm not going to remember what we wanted to talk about because it's finally here. Finally, a platform to learn more about Linux that's been created by Linux enthusiasts, that's been developed by developers that really, really know their ass. Like they can build complicated systems that match courseware and distros and virtual machines, and they all bring it together in a platform that teaches you everything around Linux to make money and to be more successful in your career. It's Linux Academy. Experienced sysadmin or new to the world of Linux, Azure, and AWS, OpenStack, and DevOps. Oh! A sharp skill set is an absolute necessity to succeed. Meet Linux Academy, an online Linux and cloud training platform 
that uses self-paced video courses and hands-on labs to give you real-world experience for a wide range of skills. Train for your certification, learn the latest DevOps tools, and grow your skill set to do better work. Linux Academy is not just a video library. Our scenario-based server labs and quiz system allow you to learn hands-on. We also have full-time human instructors who answer questions and help you earn that certification or promotion at work. We add new training every week so you'll always be up to date on the latest tech. Sysadmins of every experience level use Linux Academy to stay on the bleeding edge of the Linux ecosystem. You should too. While you're laughing, the hackers are dropping malware into your system. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplug to get a free seven-day trial and support the show. Try out their hands-on labs, their testing for certs, their courseware, their downloadable comprehensive study guides. It's amazing, you guys. Old, young, or I should say young Chris would envy old Chris, which is present Chris. It's complicated for the Linux Academy. I mean, it's one of the things that I just couldn't even imagine when I was getting started. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Oh, thank you, Linux Academy, for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So the uh, folks over at ours decided to uh, review Ubuntu 17.10. It's about time. Scott Gilbertson posted on uh, November 27th, just a couple of days ago, at 4.30 in the morning, his review of Ubuntu 17.10. Now, who do you suppose that's about, 4.30 in the morning? That's really something. Um, and I, I find it to be interesting to, to just get like sort of a, an outside-the-bubble take. On the Ubuntu 17.10 release, that's sort of what I thought was fascinating about this, sort of outside the bubble. And uh, there's a couple of a couple of elements of this review that jumped out at me. Uh, what was his name? His name was uh, um, 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 Scott. So Scott writes, uh, in light of the GNOME switch, this release seems more like a homecoming than an entirely new voyage. More like a homecoming. Yeah, I kind of agree. It does kind of feel like more like yeah, a return really to GNOME. Does. Yeah. Um, and a return to community-inspired design and building and packaging, right, and feature sets. One of the things that when, uh, when uh, Dustin Kirkland was going around and doing the survey and asking what people wanted on Ubuntu, the thing that really stood out to me is um, oh, this feels like old Ubuntu. This feels like old, early days Ubuntu is what it, the whole entire thing felt like that to me. So I, I completely agreed with Scott's take here. It's like more of a return, really. Uh, he goes on to write uh, that, a couple other interesting points. <clears throat> a recent call for community input on the new Ubuntu desktop theme seems to message a point about the new Ubuntu desktop, one that's more community-centric. And then he writes, Canonical got rid of most of its design team. So in one sense, it has no choice but to farm these things out to the community. <laughs> um, mm. I don't know if you wanted to in your in your, your personal opinion. Did you want to respond to that particular line in this review? Because that's a that's a bold statement right there. Canonical got rid of the desktop team. No more designers working on the desktop, and their only option now is to uh, cheap it out and go to the community for a theme. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's not the first time I've heard people say that, and um, people have said in the past similar kind of things about how we don't have a design team or the design team don't care. There's always some reason, there's always some ulterior motive for why we're asking the community for input. It can't possibly be that we're just asking them because we value their opinion as users and experts in the field. Like, that can't possibly be the reason why we're asking. 
Yeah, it does seem to be like there's an assumption, right? Just a just an assumption. Now, um, do you would you would you acknowledge that it does? I think some of that comes from like this uh, this recent restructuring at Canonical, where people just kind of you know it's it, people don't know from the outside. They don't really know who's left and who's working on what, so they just make their assumptions from the outside that uh, well, they got rid of the Unity Eight folks, they got rid of the people working on artwork, and now they just have the core team of people that we hear about. And uh, that's it. And so they have to do this. I mean, there is so, a, you, the perspective seems reasonable to me just from the, completely from the outside. Uh, to some degree, you know, we did downsize to some degree back in April. And, you know, that was a struggle. And there are people who were lost through uh, all areas of the business. Um, right, so right. some, yep. Certainly some people were lost from design and some people lost from the desktop team and some people lost from all other parts of the company. It wasn't just, you know, if you worked on Unity 8, you're out the door and that's it. it there, yeah. there were people lost from all over the place. And and that was difficult for us. Mm. Um, but the, the thing about Unity 7 and, and theming and stuff, we haven't, we haven't made a lot of effort in uh unity seven changes for a number of years like we haven't it's been mostly maintenance mode for some time because our focus was on other things like the phone for example and and we spent a lot of time cultivating a community around the phone and now we're no longer doing that we've refocused back on the desktop it's not like we stopped asking the community for input it's just that our focus was on something else and Mm -hmm. yeah we refocused so his comments about you know returning home and coming back to the ubuntu of old that's not unsurprising given that we're no longer working on things that uh you know some people thought we shouldn't have been working on in the first place and right right i think when you look at it in a wider context, uh, you look at people that are also on like the the new community site that are discussing um, what do you want to see from Mir? Uh, what do you think about a Unity Seven remix of eighteen oh four? When you look at what the discussions that are taking place on the new community portal or hub, what's the what, what should I call it, Popey? What do I hub? The new community hub. When you look at all of the discussions that are taking place, then the theme discussion fits in as just one of many wide-ranging discussions that are now taking place. But when you look at it in it's in just if you look at just the theme discussion, it looks like oh we're we're tossing it to the community. And when in reality, you guys are seeking input on like three or four different topics that I can think of just off the top of my head right now. And right. it's a change. You're right. What it is is it's a behavior change from from the from the last few years. It's an adjustment to a behavior change. Yeah, and part of the reason why we uh, changed and rebooted the community website was because it didn't lend itself particularly well. I mean, something I've said to other people recently is that a lot of this engagement happened uh, over the last few years. You just didn't see it. It just wasn't particularly visible. It was buried on IRC channels. There were conversations happening in an Ubuntu desktop IRC channel on Freenode, or the conversation was happening on a mailing list somewhere. It's public, but nobody found it, and it wasn't particularly easy to engage with. Modern um, projects are using things like Slack, like Discourse, to make it easier for members of the community to get on board and voice their opinion and say yeah i'd like to help if the way you get on board is well first of all you've got to sign up to this mailman mailing list then people are going to be like no screw that i don't even use email anymore yeah right and and so part of this is 
planned. You know, we, we, we wanted to make it easier. The onboarding process, the whole reason why the community hub exists is to make it easier for that onboarding process so that we can start having initiatives, yeah. which are, you know, new design or get involved in a new flavor or what should we do about this feature or what should we do about this particular piece of software? It's to make it easier for people to engage with us and people are engaging, as you've said. Can I ask you I'd, something? I'd, oh, go ahead, I'd, go ahead. I'd just like to add to that as well. What makes contributing to the themes so sacred? Why is it that all of the community members that contribute translations or file um, bugs or submit patches or work on the upstream code that Ubuntu and many other distributions are made of? Why is it that that kind of contribution is fine, but suddenly asking people to work on themes is suddenly taboo and you've sold out, you've you've thrown it all to the community and you don't care anymore? I guess yep. I guess that because the fantasy is that Canonical has like these super high end developers that are secretly using Macs with Adobe Photoshop to create themes that we don't have. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's that. I think it's that for some reason people have it in their head that design is not a thing that people contribute for the love of wanting to contribute. You have to pay designers. That's the only way to get good design is you have to pay them. Yet software developers, people who provide patches, people who do translations, people who write documentation, they can all do it for free for the love of it in their spare time. But designers, no, you have to pay them. And I think it's a ludicrous assertion that that these are entirely separate, different people that have to be paid. I'm not saying never pay them but the the assertion that for some reason we shouldn't be able to ask the community to give us help in the areas of design in the same way that we ask people to help us translate patch test isos and write documentation i think is bizarre Mm. okay all right that's that's a pretty good point um yeah it's just a sort of a, a reframing of how you think about it so dan i think you and i would agree on one point uh the biggest point of branding could be the theme like this is where ubuntu could really kind of be you see it and it's obviously ubuntu uh so it's not really even it's not a theme it's it's an experience isn't it it's like the ubuntu experience and and it seems like owning that is pretty critical to have a desktop that's truly an Ubuntu feeling like it's the heart of Ubuntu. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, you know, my personal stance is themes are dead. You know, it doesn't really like oh, style really? sheets are API these days, oh, you know, okay, they're important okay. for applications. And I think, I think your, your style sheet and your icons are just as important as uh, any other component of the desktop environment. Mm. Um, you wouldn't say, um, I mean, would, you know, when you, when you, canonical decided to stop doing unity eight they didn't say okay community come up with a new desktop environment mm-hmm. you know right like that's it's important work that you just don't hold a contest for you know like there has to be a direction and a vision and and they said hey we're gonna go with uh you know gnome and then took feedback on how are we going to present gnome right and then uh they didn't leave that up to a vote or hold a contest or anything like that right it was well let's take the feedback into consideration and let's you know do surveys and there, it was much more of a directed effort, and I think that's probably what people are ad- objecting to. Is it kind of seems like it's like ah, you know, we don't care; it's just paint, you know. Yeah, but what if? And I know this is a long shot, but what if you can end up with something that's like ninety percent there, and it's pretty damn good? And you take your own internal team and you round off that last ten percent, and you make it great, and then you over the next. 
three LTS releases, I mean, I'm talking a really long-term scale here, you make it specifically the Ubuntu-branded desktop theme. And it, But it starts with the – thing, the thing that I like about going to the community about this is, well, let's get the most modern takes on what makes the best theme. Like let's get the Arc people involved. Let's get the Mocha people. Let's get everybody, people that are loving the Pop! OS stuff. Let's get everybody involved that's loving all that stuff and get the best, most modern version of a Linux desktop theme that we can get because GTK3 can be beautiful. And so let's just see the most latest version of that. Yeah, then, but the problem is, like, in reality, what you get is everybody just upvotes, like, trendy crap that's broken, you know, and it's, it's, hmm. it's like nothing that somebody actually put time into. I think, um, you know, the decision that was made to uh, have Sam do the server icons is, like, a no-brainer. Like, not yeah. doing that would be a huge mistake to yeah. me. Yeah. And so yeah. what, what I would, you know, if I were someone that had power in the Ubuntu canonical realm is that I would say, Hey, you know, all this great design work that we did for unity eight, let's um, rally a community around building a style sheet that lives up to that ideal. And let's, let's build what we all, you know, invested in, you know, before GTK three. <sighs> that's really a thing though. I mean, that's a thing that you got to take on and, and maintain and then, and then, and then, and then really own for years and years and years, especially when you ship it in an LTS, you know? And whereas if you start with Edwadia and then you make Edwadia good and usable by human beings, uh, you're almost you're almost all the way there. I'll, I'll say this. I'm, I'm not really on my machine at home that I use all day long and all, all night long on my on my non-work days. It's, it's an Ubuntu LTS 16.04 Unity 7 with the Arc Dark theme. And I forget the icon theme but i'm not using the standard one but the thing that really strikes me about the old theme that comes with unity 7 is uh it's extremely um glanceable like you can just look at the icons and you know immediately what they are they're large they're they're readable it holds up unity 7's theme today holds up it holds up in high dpi even it holds up it holds up better than some current themes hold up surprisingly it's it feels dated but it holds up and so in some ways, because they sort of they – did, they did own that and they really, they really kind of took that under their wing, you know, years later, it still works. It still holds up. It's just feeling old these days. So I, I do follow you, Dan, and I, I do completely agree that if, if, if you could, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just sort of dump that investment in the Unity 8 design. You wouldn't just jettison it. You would, you would so, somehow incorporate it in the, in the future product. That is, to me – not as sustainable as having a light fork of Edwadia and 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 then over the next say two or three releases carefully iterating it that to me seems to be a, uh, a, a I don't know a more sustainable approach you know what I'm saying like something that it, it will take longer but it would work much longer you know it's something that's usable much longer yeah I, I think the argument is that it requires a significant investment and the the, one of my favorite quotes um, from a, a design article was, you know, design's not something you sprinkle on the top like a little bit of je ne sais quoi uh, as a, a junkard pissing down an alleyway. You know, it's just like it's not something <laughs> you just throw on there like, ah, whatever. Yeah, I you know, suppose it, so, it, yeah. It, it's you you got to invest in it and cultivate it just as much as you care about the, the actual meat of the code of the applications. Mm. And I think that's the thing is people want to see that it's invested and cared about and not like an afterthought. And and I know that those guys actually do really care about that stuff. I think that it just needs to be communicated that way. 
I suppose Eric, you have a good point. Uh, Eric in the mumble room says, uh, "Well, look, this is the this is like the definition of not. This is the definition of anti not invented here, right, Eric?" Right. I mean, for years, Canonical was that company that if it's not built here, then we're not using it. You know, I mean, that's that's very reminiscent. Or at least of, that was, I think, the impression. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That was the impression. Um, but, uh, I mean, how is reaching out to the community anything but being like an Apple who who embodies that completely? I mean, here, why don't you be a part of this thing? Why don't you help us create icon themes and, and wallpapers or whatever the case may be and and be a part of this product, be a part of, you know, 1804? Hmm. So um, I guess I guess we probably really just have to kind of leave it here. It seems to me, unless anybody else has any closing thoughts on it, no. it seems like we just leave it here and we just wait and see what happens. But uh, well, good point, everybody. Just one, yeah, just one extra point. Um, I don't. It's I think it's because people often are going a little bit back on the notion between code or design, which things should actually get contributions. Is that if you pick up a pen and a, and a little bit of paper and try to draw something, you'll probably see that you fail miserably. And it's hard for you to actually have that notion when it's about code. So people yeah. often think that <laughs> you know that they're gonna get crappy design, and so they tend to value and think that the only way is by actually you know acquiring talents and having the company do so. And the other point on for recommendations, like when when it's when it's like getting actual feedback from the community. It has been the inconsistency that makes Canonical's voice a little bit kind of low. And in that way, community responds not with an open heart immediately. It takes a good amount of time until they actually, okay, feel more, okay, they are actually being honest here. It's not just another move. It's not going to change in, you know, in a couple of weeks uh, type of thing. Yeah, and that could be something that changes over time too, don't you think? Don't you think that's something that will that will will ease over time potentially? I think yes, as long as the management is done in such a way that actually fixes problems that existed before. As a developer, I had once a really bad experience when I actually spent time investing in a piece of technology that Canonical did invest in, and then just bang disappeared. And you know that experience, if you have that over and over. You don't come back, right? Yeah, yep. And yep. it's one of those things you have to be resilient and you have to kind of do smooth transitions. And I think they're doing that now. I hope they continue with that path. Well said. So um, I want to move us on because uh, I still want to talk about DRM because I think that's sort of a super important topic. And there's been some major developments this week. But I, I do want to do just a quick bit of follow-up and go back to last week's episode if we could. And uh, the uh, CEO of uh, – you guys remember we talked about Linus, the auditing tool last week? Uh, and uh, was it was Sysify. Is that how we decided? To, uh, C-I-S-O-F-Y, Sysify? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, he, Michael, is the CEO there and he, he, he pinged me and said, hey, just a couple of extra bits of information about Linus. Uh, it just hit its 10, 10 year birthday this month wow. as we happen to just randomly cover it. Awesome. That's super awesome, dude. Uh, and also Linus can run as an unprivileged user in the episode. I decided to run it with sudo. Uh, and, but he says, if you do that, if you run it as an unprivileged user, uh, the report is just stored in slash temp. And uh, I really, I really appreciate it. He, he also said that some of the plugins are completely free uh, and there are, there are indeed others that are uh, commercial. But they're built by companies. 
Um, he says, also, we advise using a cron job with daily compares for easy detection of new findings. And uh, he linked to a Linux-audit.com article for that. If you didn't catch last week's episode, I definitely recommend it. We talked about Linux, a tool where you could audit your own system and uh, see what's changed, see what's going on with that. How's the Gentoo Challenge going over there? I see we have, I have a whole bunch of things happening right now on the screen. I don't even know what these are. What are we seeing build right now? What is this? Right now, we are updating the world set. So, uh, Wes Payne over there, Mr. Wes Payne, son of a bitch, uh, he's the one that, I don't know if you guys, if you've, li- if you've caught all of the episodes of Linux Unplugged, as we were wrapping up, uh, a l- just, a, just, a, just a couple episodes ago, it wasn't that long ago, <laughs> uh, Wes suggested that we do a Gen 2 challenge, and so what we have done is uh, we've created a virtual machine here in the studio that is building Gentoo right now as we record this episode. And that's what you're looking at on this, if you're watching the video version right now of the Unplugged program. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to the audio, a.k.a. if you're the majority of the audience, um, just envision a lot of GCC crap going across the screen. And um, you've basically got it. So I just wanted to give a mention for two reasons. Uh, one is a completely selfish reason, and the other is because I just love talking about these events. And... Um, I can't help but I can't help but talk about them. Texas Linux Fest is coming up, and they have their call for papers right now. So it's going to be in June. So you got a little bit of time to plan for this. It's going to be at the AT and T Conference Center in Austin, Texas, and uh, they have a, a whole range of topics. But they have their call for papers right now. This is their eighth year. And I've never been. I, I, I thought it, it seems was, like a lot of fun. Could somebody tell me how many how many people go to this thing? How many people go to Texas Linux Fest? And uh, is it um, June? Is it worth being in Austin uh. in June? Like, really? Be honest with me. Is it? Uh, tweet me at Chris Elias. Is it worth being in Austin in June? It just doesn't. It feels like it's got to be a really good event <laughs> to be in Austin at that time. Uh, and then uh, just a little uh, PSA before we uh, wrap up the community news segment this week. Uh, you Fedora users, uh, to pay attention just for a moment, Fedora 25 has entered the end-of-life status, a.k.a. no more updates for you, um, in just about a week from when you hear this episode. So now would be a really good time to upgrade to Fedora 26. Or maybe Fedora 27. Yeah. Fedora 26 should be really solid right about now. <laughs> and 27's getting there. And uh, your upgrades should probably go pretty smooth if uh, you have a pretty straightforward system. My upgrades have gone smooth for, for many releases now. Fedora 25 will be um, DOA in just about two weeks. So upgrade to Fedora 26 or 27 now if you're a Fedora user because your time is running out. We need to have like an end of life theme. Like if we could, if somebody wants to make us an end of life clip, I'll play it on the soundboard for like distros that go end of life. Because I think it's a, we should just have like a segment. Like if you're running this version of Linux, you're no longer getting patches. If you're running this version of Linux, you're no longer getting patches. Yeah, right. You can just follow this show There's no and master, know when you need yeah, to update. There's no master list, right? So we should just put it all out there. Just let everybody know. I don't know. Then I hear from people, maniacs, like I think maybe Joe or somebody. Somebody I know. I'm not going to say it's Joe Resington. I'm not going to say it it's Joe. it probably is. But it's probably Joe. Are running like Ubuntu 14.04 or something. Ooh. I know. I know. Just absolute, I don't absolute feel clean animals. Now. Absolute animals. Just animals. I can't even understand it. I can't even understand it. Bashful, you had a, a comment about the funeral march towards uh, old distros. <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say, you wanted a sound clip? Just run the funeral march. Oh, I get it. <laughs> you know, like the burr, burr, burr. Bingo. I feel like we I feel like we need something unique to the show though. 
You know, like some podcasts have people submitting clips all the time, st- soundboard stuff. I got an, For sure. I got an empty soundboard right now, and the only thing on the Linux Unplugged soundboard is the intro and outro theme and and the flashback. I got the flashback harp, which I feel like is good, right? That's good. But I don't have anything more. So if you want to help populate the new soundboard for 2018, you can start sending clips into the Unplugged program. It's going to be full is of... The bell, is the bell not a part of the soundboard? Well, it depends, is that a real bell? depends on the show. It depends on the show. You know, people ask, do I, should I reveal? Do you guys feel like I should reveal if the bell is real or not? No, keep it a mystery. I'm going to keep it a mystery. Because I know some people uh, have, uh, have looked at the audio waveforms to try to determine if the bell is real or not. And... Uh, I don't want to say. No. I don't want to say. You'll have to guess yourself. You can uh, load this up in Audacity. Load this episode up in Audacity. And uh, you take a look at it yourself. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there to support the show, DigitalOcean.com, and use our promo code Unplugged. One word. That's it. One word. You get $10 credit over DigitalOcean.com. West Payne is the perfect DigitalOcean customer because every time I have a conversation with you, Wes... Every single time you're like, you know, I could just do that on a droplet. Like I, I kind of had to. Actually, you know, that's true. I kind of had to argue with you to just load a virtual machine on your laptop to do the Gen two challenge. Oh, whoopsie! Because <laughs> you're like, you know, we could just do it on a droplet, and then I could use the HTML five console, and then I could reload one of those rigs with Gen two. Like you had a whole plan, and I don't know, less than fifty five seconds, which ironically is probably how long it would take to spin up a droplet. You like that? I like that a lot. DigitalOcean.com. You create your account. You use the promo code DOUnplugged. You get a $10 credit. Now, the rig that I love, my personal favorite, three cents an hour. I'm just letting that marinate for a second. Three cents an hour. That's like nothing. That's nothing. You can find that just walking around outside. I mean, you know, I'm not saying the burger comparison. I'm not saying the coffee comparison or the heroin or weed. Whatever your habit is. get that. And I'm not saying if that's a soundboard bell or a physical bell. But what I am saying is you can get a great deal if you go to DigitalOcean.com and you use our promo code D-O-Unplugged. They got 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors. Of course, the host machines run GNU slash Linux, running KVM for the virtualizer. And they got block storage. If you're basic and you just want something that shows up as a slash dev slash SD device, go with the block storage. <laughs> that's what I do when I want to have it as my home. So when I set up a, when I set up a DigitalOcean droplet that I'm going to remote into and have like Ubuntu Mate... I use block storage for my slash home. Now, if I have a rig that I'm using for like web storage or additional files or sharing with co-hosts, that's where I use spaces or object storage with DigitalOcean. They have an API, so when the machines during for our production, I need to spin them up or shut them down. I do it all through the API. I don't go to the website. I love it. And if you're in a project, they have if you're if you're like a, maybe you're like I don't know, just randomly going to put this out there, just a crazy idea. If you're in an open source project, you're working with with some people. They got team accounts. Team accounts. They got team accounts. You can easily manage your cloud with your team by inviting others. Team accounts. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code DOUnplugged and take advantage of a $10 credit and enjoy spaces. I wonder, are they still offering the, oh, shoot, they're still offering, oh, shoot, oh, So here's what you can do. You go to DigitalOcean.com, you create your account, use our promo code DOUnplugged, you get the $10 credit, and then you go sign up for a two-month trial of Spaces for free. It's good stuff. It really is good stuff. 
You know, the thing about DigitalOcean that strikes me, and maybe they should make this like their slogan or something. But go, S, go. It's, it's easy enough for development, right? All right. Like, you can spin it up, like you said, API, super simple dashboard. Seconds. Right, seconds. You don't have to think about it. It's not like difficult. Like serious CPU There's and memory. Inter- and integrations and bandwidth, seconds. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's stable enough for production. Like when you're ready to go full bore, putting it out there for the world, boom, no problem. Oh, boom, no problem. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code DO Unplugged. And uh, Godspeed. Go create some infrastructure. You know, I had a good comparison. That costs less per hour than long distance used to cost per minute. Wow. And also super solid old man reference. Yeah. Nice. DigitalOcean.com, promo code D-O, unplugged. So I used to be um, one of these uh, one of these guys who was uh, not so uh, not so concerned about the DRM. You just wanted your media. Then I went and watched a talk by this Cory Doctorow guy. This son of a bitch totally changed my entire he position. He knows how to speak. It happened randomly too, and uh, I have a uh, I have a uh, I have a vlog about it. Not to be that guy. But I have a vlog about it where I went there and I, I, I saw the talk and I went, well, shit, now I, now I completely changed the way I feel about this. So I want to I frame our, our, our discussion here with what hit me and what I walked away with. And just I think it helps us think about this DRM problem. There is a lot of inventions throughout humanity that are really there because they were able to stand on the shoulders of giants. We even have a saying for it, standing on the shoulders of giants. And if you look at open source, I mean, that's what these open source, all of our open source desktops are all standing on top of the frameworks and libraries and kernels and stacks that everybody else has built. Everything is standing on the shoulders of giants that we rely upon. If you look at the Internet, it's the same fucking thing. It's standing on the shoulders of giants. And DRM locks it up. DRM locks up knowledge. It locks up intellectual property. It, it, it makes it ephemeral. And it makes it, it makes it something that's only available in the present and something that is inaccessible to future generations of humanity. It locks up knowledge. It, uh, it is the antithesis of the open internet, of open standards, of open source, of sharing knowledge. It's the antithesis of what the internet has brought us, the, this fundamental communications platform that humanity can use to educate themselves and grow. DRM is the opposite of all of that. And the EFF has been fighting against DRM and the laws behind it for a decade and a half. And things are not going well. So Cory Doctorow, who I think is the premier thinker on this topic, who has who has the, he, he holds talks that will change the way you think about this. And he writes posts on the EFF's uh, Deep Links blog that will really make you think. And the headline is DRM's Dead Canary. How we just lost the web and what we learned from it and what we have to do next or what we need to do next. And the thing about DRM is it's, it's not about copyright protection. In fact, that's total 100% bullshit. That's used car, car salesman bullshit. 
what everybody would in court this is Corey's words everybody on the inside of the industry secretly knows that DRM technology is completely irrelevant the technology is irrelevant it's fundamentally flawed it, it, and I'll get into why but it is fundamentally flawed it is impossible to keep DRM safe but DRM law is everything and this is not a U.S. specific thing. The reason companies want DRM has nothing to do with copyright. Nothing to do with copyright at all. So let's look at Netflix because it's just an easy example. But there's so many other things beyond Netflix. There's so, DRM has so many other implications besides online media. But it is the one that we think of, and it's the easiest one to relate to. So let's go with Netflix. They send you an online streaming movie that's been scrambled, and they want it to be sure they want to be sure that you can watch it, and that you can even maybe save it to your hard drive and play it back later. But they want to make sure it's protected, so they need to give you a way to view the movie at some point. That means they have to unscramble the movie for you. And there's only one way to unscramble a file that's been completely encrypted. You have to use a decryption key. So Netflix has to also give you the unscrambling key. But if you have a key, you can't just unscramble the Netflix movies and then save them to your hard drive. So how can Netflix give you a key but control how you use it? Netflix has to hide the key somewhere on your computer. Like in a browser extension. Like an, like an encrypted browser media extension. Hiding something really good, hiding something well, is hard. Hiding something well in a place of equipment that you give to your adversary to take away with them and do anything they want to it offline is impossible. Any tiny flaw in that, figil, in that, in that fragile wrapping around these keys, any tiny flaw that you can exploit, and they're free. And once that flaw has been exposed, anyone can write an app or browser plugin that has a save button that can just exploit it immediately. And of course, they've seen this over and over again. We all know With this. all kinds of different schemes, yeah. And Corey's writing this in a way that maybe people that aren't familiar with the situation... He does a really good job. But yeah, it's super good. Once the flaw is exposed, anybody can get access to it. And this is a fact. The companies know this. They can spend millions of dollars developing DRM. And it gets broken in days by teenagers or hobbyists with equipment... And it's not because DRM makers are stupid. They can have brilliant people making DRM. It's because the idea is stupid. Trying to store a decryption key on a system that your adversary controls is dumb as shit. It's the dumbest thing you can do in security. Think about that for a second. Trying to store the key to your system on a hacker's computer, that's the stupidest thing you could do. And that's what DRM is trying to do. So this is where the law comes in. Uncle Sam's law comes in. But the best thing is, it goes way beyond Uncle Sam. It all comes back to your old buddy, your favorite, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh. In 1998, Congress passed that son of a bitch, and Section 1201 provides for felony liability for anyone commercially engaged in bypassing a DRM system. And get this, if you're commercially doing it, you know, like some of these Cody box manufacturers? Right. Five years in prison, $500,000 fine for your first offense. 
How many congressmen, congresspeople do you think had actually used the internet when this law was enacted? I know, right? 98. Even non-commercial bypass of DRM is subject to liability. And it also makes just even talking about DRM exploits legally risky. And yet uh, use of Section 1201 of the DMCA to threaten security researchers who discover flaws is, is widely used too. And the beautiful thing is, is uh, thanks to uh, U.S. trade representatives, I, I mean, you know, hoorah, everybody, uh, they've convinced other countries around the world to adopt a version of this rule as part of our trade policies. So you want to do trade with us? You got to protect intellectual property. We don't even we don't even need some of these huge like uh, TPPs. We just you want to work with us? You gotta you gotta respect it. This is what you, this is where the W3C comes in. These sons of bitches over the W3C have really sunk us all. And this is where I think Linux users may be able to eventually. It's not just Linux users, actually. It's any platform users. But I think it has to start with Linux users. Could maybe change change the tide, move the dial, whatever stupid little uh, saying you want to give it. But the W3C and the, and the implementation of EME, encrypted media extensions, is really what enabled all of this. It was sort of the final straw. It was the, it was the what is it was a straw that, you know, whatever the fuck. In 2013, Netflix and a few other media companies convinced the W3C to start work on a DRM system for the web. This DRM system, encrypted media extensions, EME, represented a sharp departure from the W3's normal business practices. First, the EME would not be a complete standard. That's a, that's a, huge, that's a huge deviation. The organization would specify an API through which publishers, i.e. businesses, large corporations, and browser vendors, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and Mozilla, would make DRM work. I want you to think about that for a second, because that means you have to be on the approved list. You have to be Google. You have to be Apple. You have to be Microsoft to make this work. The actual content decryption module, the CDM, wouldn't be defined by the standard. That means that EME was a standard name only. If you started a browser company and followed all of the W3's recommendations, you still wouldn't be able to play back a Netflix video. That's the killer. If you followed all of the W3 standards today, you wouldn't be able to play the video. That's not a fucking standard. It's not an open web or That's anything not like a standard. It. That's not a standard, right? That's not a, you have to get Netflix's permission to play back that video. Regardless of what it's this this not a standard. That's not a standard. And that is a oh man. But what it basically means is you are enshrining the current browser monopolies. Because you can't now create a competitor to Chrome or Firefox. Yeah, absolutely. And play back encrypted media extensions. It's also, it also twists things a little bit. It's not like you and Netflix establishing a trust relationship. It's them and these companies you happen to use as the middleman. Right. Right. My middlemans. Yeah, you're right. That is also really creepy. In a web which every publisher gets to pick and choose which browsers you can visit their sites is very different from the historical web. I think we should. Yeah. Historical, the, the traditional web. The old days. Technologies that have stood in the way of this permissionless interoperability, for instance, patent-encumbered video, have been seen as impediments to the idea of open web, not standardization. Look at Flash. Steve Jobs' uh, thoughts uh, on uh, Flash open letter. 
iOS's refusal to implement Flash, the really limp attempts to implement Flash on Android that never went anywhere. Flash died, not because we don't like it, but because of mobile. Because mobile wouldn't do Flash. That's why Flash dies, is dying, right? And now is essentially gone. Is because mobile refused to implement it. Because it wasn't a standard. And now, thanks to mobile, projects like YouTube DL allow me to download video from over 200 websites because they're all trying to be mobile compatible and they got to serve this shit up as an H.264 file. And this is the opposite of all of that. This is actually the... This is like enshrining Flash forever. This is... But it's not Flash this time. This time it's encrypted media extensions, which each manufacturer, Netflix, Hulu, they all get to brew their own now. This is the opposite of what the, like what the W3C used to be about. This is the opposite of what we used to expect from an open web. The, when the W3C starts making technologies that only work when they're blessed by a handful of entertainment companies... They're putting their thumbs, they're putting their fists on the scale in favor of ensuring that the current browser giants get the majority and enjoy a permanent regime. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I use Chrome because it works with Netflix before Firefox could? Yep. (sighs) You know, this has a a lot of uh, parallels with the whole net neutrality thing that's going on now, too. That's interesting. You're right. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. Only this is worse because this is this is locking up intellectual content and things that humanity, creative things that humanity has created, and wrapping them up in a DRM that is only accessible once a certain vendor has blessed it. And uh, it's cute for modern day companies that want to make a great profit right. and impress their shareholders. But what about forty five years from now? What about sixty five years from now when we want to look back at the classics? Well, what if what if all that shit's wrapped up in DRM? What is that? How does that impact humanity? And I had a thought about this. There seems to be an unavoidable harsh reality to me. The W3C wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for WebKit and Chrome's dominance. If Mozilla Firefox was the predominant browser, this is my personal opinion, but if they were the predominant browser, if they had a 70% market share right now, would we be getting this W3 DRM encrypted media extension standard rammed down our throats? Or would they have to do something that was open to the general web? Something tells me things would be a lot different. We're only in this position right now. We're only getting screwed. And it's not like we're getting a little screwed. It's like humanity. It's like Disney on a whole new scale. It's Disney for all of the content. It's Disney's copyright imperialistic behaviors for all intellectual property for as long as the DRM technology is possibly valid and these companies are around to ping a request. This DRM is going to work and it's going to screw over people for years and years and years. And I don't feel like this would be possible if Firefox had 70% of the market share. Now, I say this completely understanding that Firefox supports encrypted media extensions, and I understand that right. they are – but I feel like they had no, they had no option. They didn't. They, re- they I, really didn't. So when you think what can we do, well, part of me feels like what we could do is we could all switch to the new Firefox. It's pretty fucking great. Firefox Quantum 57, I've been running it since it came out. It is faster than Chrome. It just has less load on my system. Like I can, I can load up Firefox and have it load a whole bunch of tabs in the background, and it doesn't feel like my system is doing anything. Like it just feels like 
I don't know. Like I look at my cores, you know, because I always have like the little system stats up in yeah, the right. up in the bar, <laughs> and I'm like, like my cores are just sitting there, like at like at, at nothing, at nothing. Meanwhile, I'm blasting through Firefox pages <laughs> like a maniac, and all my tabs are loading up. Like when I do that, when I got like sixteen tabs, fifteen, ten tabs on Chrome that I close and then it reloads. Like it, my all my CPUs are pegged for a while. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Look at Chrome, man. Look at that. It's multi-process, multi-core. It's so awesome. Really browsing now. Yeah, but now when I launch Firefox, it does the same damn thing, and it uses a, a, just a total, 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 like 70% less of the CPU. I think it's pretty getting pretty damn competitive. And you look at, like, they're so serious about some of the technologies that they're investing in that, like, Rust is an ends to a means. Rust, the programming language, is an ends to a means to what they're trying to accomplish. And Rust itself is a technological miracle so um maybe now is the time as linux users we make the hard cut and we start using firefox and we start advocating firefox like we advocate the linux desktop and i think this is the key piece if we can advocate the use of firefox like we were able to advocate the use of the linux desktop maybe over time we could start retaking a little bit of that market share and you were you were so inspired west by the new release that you ended up putting that shit on your phone i did it's true you maniac. Are you going to set as the default browser? I Right no. now I'm picking, but I think I will. I think I will. I've been kind of fiddling Lies. between them, but really? I might try it. Really? Yeah. I, I, you get the sync going. You know, it's it's a good time. Uh, Mr. Daredevil, you want to wrap us up on this topic before we move on? Yeah. So I actually think Firefox is a little bit in just as bad position as Chrome um, and as Google in here, actually. Uh, they were just as much as pushing for DRM. The only big difference is Google can decide to do whatever they want with Chrome and we could potentially attempt to override uh, whatever is being done in Firefox because of its more open dynamics, we should be able at least to, by just injecting contributors over and over, take actually more ownership of the code and actually get that to a point that we have the say. Now, all those cases are difficult. And this started way before we were talking about DRM. It started when we started <laughs> talking about OSM.js, yeah. the WebAssembly. Because if WebAssembly starts being okay and people were mostly, oh, because of the performance was good, it meant that people were willing to compromise readability of the JavaScript code that runs in their browser in exchange of speed. That's actually when the problem started. Not so much DRM. DRM is just as a consequence of that, I think. And us actually wanting to use those services. Um, and just as a final point is, well, it comes down to have a way to the browser work out a sandbox that is isolated, that does run these DRM for this company and that other company that we can make sure that it's only that one. At least this should give us the option of, okay, I want to access this service. I already compromised to this service now I'm actually allowing them to execute this code, but at least it's isolated in that context. That could be an, an implementation that would be more okay with than maybe what's actually been happening now where it uses more of the holistic system because it, it requires that for the rendering and everything. Yes, it sounds like you're advocating for something more, you know, trying to put the user back in control rather than the system where we're left being, you know. Absolutely. Hard-like system is what I would really love to see, but, you know, that day is never coming, at least so far. I have to re- to just resign to cubes. That's basically I verify feel, myself. I feel like 
uh, Mozilla didn't really have much of an option in implementing this stuff either because if they didn't, then they're not providing what their users want and then they're, by consequence, going to lose market share. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. And I think, Chris, you were spot on just with, uh, you know, with the dominance of Chrome and WebKit and just like how used how used to, are we to all the proprietary stuff Chrome bundles in for us and we just we just use it and it's like, it's useful. Oh, yeah, I can cast to my TV, all these right. things. But it just really hits home that right. these are things that are not open or are not part of the open web. Well, and what I feel like is if there's anybody that can swallow rough edges or deal with inadequacies, which really isn't even fair to prescribe to Firefox. But if there's anybody that can, it's, it's Linux users who have come up through the bad years of a Linux desktop. And we're kind of like, I know, I know I have. I will just speak for myself. But I've spent the last couple of years just sort of kicking back, my hands behind my head, leaning back in my seat going, finally, it's here. I've got like, I've got the same proprietary crappy application that everybody else has no compromises huh. like i don't i can i can do everything everybody else can finally after all these years of the linux def, desktop advocacy and fighting for it i have i am on application parity and that's what chrome gave me chrome gave me application parity with all the other mother efforts out there who have had something i haven't had for all these years but the reality is it's like um, it's like Walmart. Walmart is can be convenient as hell here in the states, but the reality is you're killing other businesses by using Walmart. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's time to start shopping with the uh, independent mom and pop shops. And I feel like that's what we as Linux users are more equipped to do than just about any other type of computer user. That's my personal opinion. I feel like we could if we could if we could give the the, the market share to Firefox, just even just another 10% and build and advocate. You know, you go home on the holidays, maybe switch people back to Firefox. Yeah, absolutely. Is that crazy? And some, like, I've seen a number of relatives, too, running older Firefox versions that haven't updated. So that's also a good time to just, like, go get them on the new hotness. And also Firefox seems to be making moves to, like, double down on privacy concerns. Uh, there is more things coming to Firefox in future versions that are going to be pretty good. You know, like isolating out, like, tracking to, like, each site gets their own silo of information and yep. things like that that I think are going to be compelling, not in their implementation details, but in their overall approach. They're going to kind of take the iPhone approach, and we don't need to use the cloud services. We just want to sell the individual product and protect your data. And uh, I think that sales pitch could really sell for the web browser. Mozilla has a unique relationship with the web and what their motivations are as a result, especially compared to you know someone like Google, who obviously needs the web, but uh, has other motives in mind. <laughs> Mosenrat says that's that's all well and good until uh, Walmart goes and purchases all the small mom and pop shops. <laughs> Damn it, Mosenrat. Fair enough. <laughs> Shut up. Damn it. All right. Well, before we get into the Gen 2 challenge for the week, let's take a moment and thank Ting. Talking about voting with your wallet. This is a better way to do mobile. In fact, Ting recently posted on their on their blog a super concise description of Ting. Ting is a no-contract carrier that offers pay-for-what-you-use rates as opposed to requiring customers to select a plan. In this way, mobile isn't a high fixed cost. A Ting customer's bill can vary with how much they use each month. As a result, the average bill on Ting is $23 per month. And you can get started with a $25 promo code if you go to linux.ting.com. And 
I couldn't say it better than myself. I, you know, I've tried to. In fact, uh, there's just it's it's so simple to explain that it almost feels like you have to unexplain the way the other competitors do it. It's just a smarter way to do mobile. You pay for what you use. It has nationwide coverage. They have a CDMA and a GSM network, and you can probably guess the uh, towers that those networks are. So you just pick the one that works best in your area. They got a control panel that you turn stuff on and off as you need it. They can get a SIM for like nine bucks. It's even available on Amazon Prime. I mean, it's just awesome. Linux.ting.com. It really is a better way to do mobile. With it, whether you want to have a security device, my buddy Chase from Unfilter, he has some Ting mobile devices, in uh, SIM cards in his security cameras. And, you know, they send him like, uh, I don't know, like four pictures a week. Well, why would you pay for like 20 gigs of data? That's insane. When you're maybe using eight megabytes a week, right? And that's the perfect, you, you can get that SIM card and you could put it in an Internet of Things device. You could put it in a oh, phone. Oh, it's perfect. You could, you, could put it in, you could put it in your daily driver. It's, the, the use cases are just all over the place. Because there's no contracts. There's no other termination fees. So if it doesn't work for you, just turn it off. It's $6 a month for the line. And then you can manage all the different features through their dashboard. I think it's perfect for people who really, you know, just where that expense is not, you know, where it's somewhat trivial and you just need to get stuff done. It's just the perfect backup internet connection. Your main thing goes out. You still need to go get those files and do stuff. Boom, ting. $6 a month. If you don't use it, that's all you pay. When I was doing just 100% IT contracting, I had, it, it, ting wasn't a thing then. Yep. The dark days. Yeah, <sighs> I remember this. I had, I had a, I had a, a plan. I almost won't even admit this, but you have to understand I was billing like $120 an hour. Yep. So understand that. I had a plan that was 120 bucks a month that sat in my drawer just for when I was traveling or uh, when my internet connection went down or for when I was at another client that had like crazy firewall rules or I needed to do like external testing that I just kept in my laptop bag all the time. It was always powered on and it was probably – I mean I, I probably used no more than one gig a month on that thing. Wow. I would do wow. I would do it so different now. So different now. I got three lines now on Ting. Yeah. Linux.ting.com. Go there, learn more, save $25 off a device or off your first month by going to Linux.ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring the unplugged program. So Mr. Payne over there has been installing Gentoo throughout the show. How's it going so far, Wes? How do you how do you feel? We're still compiling. So I'm checking in right now. What are you building? At this moment, uh, same same position we were from last time. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, what? That's right. So you're saying I literally have nothing new to talk about? That's true. Yeah, we're just uh, we're See, updating but the thing the is, world. Wes, is I planned this whole segment, this it's, whole yeah. well, this whole segment. Well, it's gone well. So we've got all of our file systems uh-huh. formatted, right? Uh-huh. What did you do? Did you go extend it for? XFS. Oh, really? Yeah. a boy. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I, you know, that's my thing, right? I'm not trying right? to slub it here. No, XFS is my thing. I really think that's the way to go. Good job. Okay. So you went XFS. Did you do like a home partition or did you, how did you? No, we're just keeping it pretty simple here. So it's, everything's just one partition. Yep, just one partition. Then you have a swap. I would never run a real system do you have a sl- Do you have a separate boot or what do you? What, no, like, not yet. Really? We might add that on there, but. Uh, and you have a swap. No, no swap either. I didn't give it that much. Brand. I wonder if I you could do a swap. Fi- I wonder if you could do a swap, fi- swap file instead. I'll know? probably add a swap file. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, what do you think, Beard? Is this sort of unimpressive? I have an important forward-looking question that is going to decide how long this process is going to take. Desktop environment. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we That's should talk about question. that. That's a good question. I chose not to do System D as the init system, so well, OpenRC yeah. is, okay. is where we're going yeah, with that this. Is, yeah, okay. I figured if we were doing yeah. the Gen 2 challenge, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. just regular regular C, user land, all that stuff. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so after this, we're going to get our use flags con- configured, everything there, uh, compile the kernel, and uh, configure the rest of the system. I have a suggestion. I, 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 well, mm, I don't even know if I want to say this out loud. I feel like we should have talked about this off air, but I have a suggestion for the desktop. What do you think about the latest enlightenment? Oh, yeah. And what about Wayland and the latest enlightenment? Do you think you do you want to try it? That I mean, be interesting. Is this stupid? Here's the thing: we have enough time, so for, so people that are Gen two users could let us know. Is this completely dumb? Should we go in light, latest enlightenment and the latest Wayland and just roll? It might with be that? fun. Check that, it out. That would be great. Yeah. That would be great. But I think we need the feedback because that I don't I don't want to do something that's almost guaranteed to fail. Especially the thing is is in a VM. What do you what is the VM environment again? A virtual box. So that is a that is an important factor here. We got to remember the fact that we're trying to do this in virtual box. Right. And I don't want like the the virtual box video. Now driver I suppose to... if we well, uh, but there's a lot of compiling. I suppose we could if we get it compiled, I could then boot into it. From my my physical machine for actually like you know run on the desktop. What that kind might of be an option. did you do a VMDK? What did you do for the disk? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a, no, it's just a raw VHD. Oh, so you would like grub that up? Yeah, boot grub that up. I like that. I'm going to use that term. That's so perfect. okay, so you would grub that up, boot into that, and then we could uh, VLC RTMP stream your whole desktop to the OBS machine. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. I don't see why not. If we could get enlightenment working, then we could do enlightenment with full 3D acceleration on the stream. That would be pretty oh, cool. That would be beautiful. Okay. That well, kind of seems that like that seems like the goal to aim for. That kind of seems like the way we should go. Uh, so, um, where do you want to go with this? Do you what are you building specifically right now again? Uh, I was updating You're, the world set. Okay. When you're done, should this be bootable? No, not yet. So we're not even we're not even going <laughs> to get It's not bootable yet. No. We're not even going to get bootable in this episode. No, no, we're not bootable. Okay. Come on, Chris. <laughs> These things take time. <laughs> this isn't just a story we're following, it's a saga, Chris. So this is why people go with these Gen 2 uh, I was just looking at this um this this branch of different Gen two systems these 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 remixes of Gen two. <laughs> I think this is why people do this. I I I can't believe I used to do this per server back in the day. This is mind numbing to think about this. I mean, I had uh, I must have had thirty five Gen two servers back in the day, maybe forty servers, and I used to do this on each one of them. That's crazy. Well, the thing is, you do them all in parallel, so it only takes the time of one. Yeah, and I definitely use disc. I use the hell out of DiscCC. DiscCC allowed me to distribute the compiling across multiple systems. Right, and we are we are limiting this to one system as we build this. So I guess that's a disclaimer. That's true. Yeah, I mean, if you want the the classic long forever compiling Gen two experience, not doing plasma, dude. Yeah, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> that <laughs> you know, take, I knew where you were that going. Take months. I knew where you were going, and we're not doing that. I think I think enlightenment. Or uh, what else, Wes? What would be your enlightenment backup? XFCE? Openbox? Uh, nice and light. That's true. LXDE? Yeah, that might be fun. LXQT. Yeah, L- yeah I was actually go. thinking yeah. LXQT. Yeah. yeah, I was I was thinking. Mumble Room, do you have any suggestions of like super minimal desktops to build on Gen 2? Oh, I w- I3. I3. I3 would be a good one. More yeah. Awesome, yeah. Yeah, I, I like I3. Or Sway, if we're talking oh, about doing Wayland. What's, uh, what about Lumina? Yes. 
Interesting. I think we should. I think. I think we. Ha- okay. We need a poll. It needs to be either. It needs to either be Enlightenment or Lumina. I'm no, gonna sway. I thought sway was would be interesting. Although we could talk about sway at any time. Well, okay. I'm okay with three. I'm I'm you know, actually pretty open to a three way. If you want to do a three way, yeah, we could always do multi multi desktop configuration. Well, no, no. I mean, we could do a three way vote, and the audience could decide, and whatever they whatever they pick, let's do that. So. Uh, I think we should – I'm going to embed a straw poll in the show notes for this week's episode. And uh, we probably won't get a lot of votes because we're way into the episode. But I feel like – I'll also drop it in the chat room for the live stream. But I feel like we'll do three options. So it's Enlightenment, Sway, and – Lumina. And Lumina. Yeah. Well, the only thing I uh, – the only thing, the only one I was – the only thing – do we want it? Instead of instead of well no I feel like sway we should give a serious consideration, but we could also talk so, about it in the future. Cause... I was yeah I was just I'm trying to think about LX cute. All right so let's do let's do let's do alignment Lumina and sway and we'll do we'll do a dedicated thing to LX cute in the future. That's the way to do it. I think that's that's the way to do LX cute. All right so so we'll put a link in or I'll embed it in the show notes. Okay. You go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for episode 225 of the Unplugged program, and then vote. On which one you want us to go with, and Wes will try to build that. I guess not. Maybe, maybe next episode. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Do you want to just leave this build going? Yeah, this... I think I will. Okay. Yeah. I'm composing the straw poll right now. It'll be in the show notes, and if you're going to stick around for the post show, I'll let you guys vote that are listening live. But I think that's probably where we should leave it right now. I'm proud of you. You're going. I'm watching it right now. You're building away. I'm really. You're. You're. How did you do this? Is this, is this a screen session or what am I looking at here? Uh, just a. I I logged you into the machine uh, with Tmux, so you're watching it too over there. Yeah, ah, cool. That's right, I am. Nice. And then we're taking that and we're capturing that from an SSH session and putting that up on the live capture. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have some better <laughs> methods in the future. This was yeah. just last day. Yeah. Well, we're we're actually it's actually kind of fun for us internally. We're like coming up with different ways we could capture your your uh, your Gen two build over there because it's like there's no X session. So there's like there's like not a lot of things we can work with to remotely capture that and put it on a video. What capture. was that uh, that like terminal sharing Ask, thing? ASCII Cinema or Biobu or Screen or Tmux or well, T-Mux, Teleconsole. Yeah. What, what what was the first one, Poppy? ASCII Cinema. Askinema. Right, 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 right. So that's for recording, not for streaming. Yeah, right? it didn't seem to have a live stream our, option. Our, our thinking was we would kind of play with a couple of different options on the pre-show next week and uh, kind of dial in the one that works the best and then just, just sort of use that. So uh, if you want to join us live next week, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for that because that's probably what we'll be spending the live stream doing is trying to figure out how to stream a, I like, barely bootstrap Gen 2 system <laughs> to do <laughs> Do a live stream. Beautiful. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but in the meantime, go to uh, linuxunplugged.reddit.com to give us your feedback, your thoughts, and all of that. We appreciate that. And your ideas on the Gen 2 Challenge. And please, please, please go to the show notes and vote on the desktop environment that Wes should deploy. We need your votes. And if you want a little more Wes Payne, you want a little more beard, you want a little me, you know, just a little me, go check out the most recent user error. Shouldn't disappoint. If you want a little Popey, you want a little Mo uh, Wimpy, check them out at the Ubuntu Podcast, always delivering a solid performance. And last but not least, check out the whole damn network over at, at Jupiter Signal on the Twitters. Yeah, I said Twitters. Deal with it, people. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>
get it out of here. Well, what do we call this one? What do you call this thing? What do you call it? JBTitles.com. Go there and vote. And if you're in any of any of the chat rooms, Discord or IRC, please bang suggest. But Eric, didn't you have you had something we wanted to add to the uh, post show, didn't you? Eric, did I mute you? No, no, you're not muted. No, it's not my fault this time. That's okay, dude. I'm just going to give you your uh, spotlight on a large Linux podcast, and you just go ahead and totally AFK. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> we did just keep on talking. All right, so I need to finish up this poll. So um, what should Wes install, right? Don't you think that's the way to go? Yeah. What should Wes install? Uh, what are we? What, what, what were our options again? I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm From sorry. Architect, you should add DWM to that list. Fuck you, Wes. <laughs> Enlightenment, Sway, and... Um, yes, Plasma. Sway. No, Plasma is not a fucking <laughs> Alex option. Cute. No, oh, we're yeah. gonna do that separate. No, though, right? yeah, separate. Although yeah. I guess let them decide. No, no, separate. No, separate. Separate. Um, there was there was a third one. BSD one. Luminous. Oh, luminous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. What Lumina. is it called? Lumina. No. Oh shit! I just hit reload. And I, I what? <laughs> Desktop. This is like what? Groundhog Day. Should Wes? I'm just gonna say should Wes build because that's really what you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ele- um, no, not uh, Enlightenment. I hate it. I you know sway s- sway. Okay. Illumina. Is it Illumina? Yeah, it's Illumina. Why do I feel like uh, it's not Illumina? Alu- I don't feel like it's no, Illumina. No, no A at the beginning. Just Illumina. 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 No, no, no A at the start. Just Illumina. Hmm. Okay, what do I search for to get that? Because I'm doing Illumina. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> no, I'm not doing an A. I'm doing an I. That's what, oh. that's what I... Oh. I'm doing... Uh, yeah, so Lumina. Oh, I really fucking hate that. <laughs> I really don't like that at all. Okay, but so it's a Lumina desktop environment. That would be a good build, though. That would be a pretty quick build, right? So that's that's pretty good. Okay, so Lumina desktop environment is the appropriate name. I think we should use the full names. And we should be specific. Which version, hey, uh, Discord, IRC, can you help me? Which version of Enlightenment specifically supports Wayland? Because it has to be that one. We could have also done Mate. Mate. No, I'm talking about Wayland here. Oh, yeah. Is, is, is Mate... The newest version should all support Wayland. Hmm. 22 no, or 21 shit. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Drive by right there. <laughs> you got whip pressed. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I love it. Is, I, I don't know why, but something wimpy. You're, you're so polite. You know what? You're, <laughs> you know, you obviously, you know what? Oh, I just, I just love it. No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Well, okay. So, so if we're just doing Wayland, we shouldn't put Element. Or I guess we got Elementary OS on the mind. I have yeah. been thinking about. I have been thinking about instead of going all in on Dan's UV7, evil mm-hmm. mission is complete. Dan showing up here every single week has been making me think like, well, fuck, maybe I should just. If I'm going to go LTS, maybe I should just go Elementary OS because my son's running that already, and it's working great for him. It's been working great for him for like two and a half years. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, damn it. I, I blame Dan the Rabbit. Okay, so elementary OS is not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking <laughs> of uh, uh, what is it? 
Lumina. 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 All right. I don't know why, though. I get those two confused. So we got Lumina Desktop, um, Enlightenment, and... Sway. Sway. Those seems pretty good. 